A remarkable passage, amazing passage. In it we see the great love, the great sin, the great forgiveness of this woman. And we see the greatness of our Lord Jesus, truly a friend of sinners and tax collectors. But before we dive into this passage, we need to understand where we've come. It is directly connected to the passage that Pastor Daniel taught last week and to other things. So I just want to draw your attention back to where we have come. Remember, look at verse 36. There is no time marker. Luke does nothing to separate this from what came before. Not that it happened immediately afterwards, but in the reading, we go right into it. And last week we saw how after Jesus had raised the son of the widow in Nain, the funeral procession coming out, the word spread to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets languishes in a jail, and he is confused, and he has expectations of what the Messiah will do when the Messiah comes, and those expectations are thoroughly biblical, and they include such things as overthrowing unjust rule, establishing a kingdom of righteousness. Jesus himself, if you turn back to Luke chapter 4, turn turn back there briefly, Jesus, in his inaugural message in this gospel, identifies himself as carrying out precisely that type of ministry. Look at Luke 4. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. John the Baptist currently being a captive in a prison. The recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus himself reads Isaiah 61, and he says, that's me, and that's what I'm about. That's what I'm doing. And as we studied that, we, we, we understood that Jesus is fundamentally fulfilling this in a spiritual sense. The, the, the freedom from captivity he gives is spiritual. The recovering of sight is blindness spiritually. We knew that because he applied it to the people in the synagogue who were not locked in there. And as they grasped that he was telling them that you are no more fit for God, you are no more qualified, you have no extra chips than a pagan Gentile uh, leper like Naaman or like the uh, Seraphonician widow. They got angry and they tried to kill him. But John is sitting in jail, waiting, waiting to be released, waiting for his ministry to pick up again, not understanding that the Messiah who came to bring a kingdom first came to die. This is, this is a mistake, an error, and a confusion that Jesus' disciples also shared. And so Jesus doesn't answer John's question. It would have been as simple as saying, John, just wait, it's coming later. And as Pastor Daniel said last week, he, will you trust me, John? Will you submit to me, John? You are right. I am the Messiah. I am the one who opens the eyes of the blind. I am the one who does these things. You have not misidentified me. He gives no explanation. Disciples go back. And then Jesus vindicates John. We're back in Luke chapter 7 now. And this is where the connecting thread comes up. 
Because the message he gives to John is this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus may not be who you expect him to be. Will you stumble and become offended? In our passage today, Simon is going to discover that Jesus is not act the way he would expect a prophet to act. If he were a prophet, Simon reasons, he wouldn't let her do this. He stumbles. The guests also stumble, and he pronounces forgiveness on the woman's sins. Who is this? So how does this connect to what came before? Well, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Furthermore, a little further in in Luke 7, connecting this, as Jesus in verse 28 says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now get this, Two, two groups of people. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. So that's one response. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. So one group of people, including tax collectors, and yet the Pharisees, verse 30, and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And then you jump down a little further, and you found what the complaint was of Jesus. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, you say. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to come with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. This man... Eats and drinks with sinners. It is not for nothing that two verses later we're introduced to a woman who Luke tells us is a sinner. That's the connection. It's directly connected. As we see, is, is that charge true? And is, if it is true, is it something that takes away from or adds to the greatness of our Lord? His, his detractors thought this accusation was shameful. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so this example comes in. Also, notice the final line of verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. All her children. Even a prostitute or an adulteress. So this is directly connected. It's playing out these two threads. There's those, the people, the tax collectors who received John's baptism, who declare God just. And there are those like the Pharisees who do not. They don't declare God just. They they reject God's purpose for them. And wisdom is justified by her children. We're going to see a Pharisee stumble, take offense, as his messianic expectations are confounded. And we're going to see the people who do declare God just. Because at heart, Jesus' declaration about John the Baptist, if you go back... Go back to verse 30, 26. I tell you among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And while he's lifting up John, it's not always obvious to see Jesus is lifting himself far higher. It's an incredibly bold claim. Incredibly bold. Which, which, let me give you a comparison. I want you to imagine, you ever go to a conference or see a speaking event and somebody introduces the speaker? Imagine Daniel this morning would introduce me. Now... Our message this morning, Pastor Jeremy, and I got up here and I said, you know, Daniel Moore is the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. You know why? Because he got the privilege of introducing me. (laughs) 
That's what Jesus has just said. It's exactly what Jesus has just said. John the Baptist, there's no, there's no Old Testament prophet greater. Why? Because there's proximity to Jesus. Because he got to finally say, he's here. All the others said, he's coming, he's coming. John, he's here. Points him out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why are we greater? We, on the other side of the cross, can even more fully introduce people to Jesus. We can more fully declare who the Messiah is. This is all about Jesus. Incredibly bold claim. And we're going to see a Pharisee in this passage who's contemplating whether or not Jesus may or may not be a prophet. We'll see a woman treat him with such honor and such personal humility as befits someone this great. That's the connection. Jesus makes a statement which elevates John, but elevates himself far, far more. The people declare God just, and the tax collectors accept this. The Pharisees don't. And then here we have played out before us. A Pharisee who stumbles, a woman who honors the Lord. We're going to see great sin, great forgiveness, great love. I just want to walk through this passage, making some observations, and then just have two points at the end for us to really chew on. So let's dive in. A sinful woman washes Jesus' feet. A sinful woman washes Jesus' feet, verses 36 to 39. This is really the event. The entire, if you want to think of this, something happens, and then we talk about it. That, that's, that's this text. Something happens, and then we discuss it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she heard that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And there's the event. And first, we've got to look at the context. We spent a little bit of time looking at it already, the preceding context, the connection. Jesus ends the last section by saying, wisdom is justified by all her children. Here's this division. The people, the tax collectors, they receive what Jesus says. They declare God just, not the Pharisees. Who's right? Who's got the right of this? Well, wisdom is vindicated by all her children, which is to say the proof is in the pudding, which is to say we will see. It will become obvious. And in this passage, that is precisely what happens. We will see wisdom vindicated by all her children, even this woman. The immediate context is this. A Pharisee invites Jesus to a banquet. This goes beyond a regular meal, which would probably be done sitting at a table. This is now the reclining. You notice that reclining at table? This is a much higher form. This is a banquet, a dinner party. This is like similar to the Last Supper, where you're lying on your side with your head towards the table, one arm free to eat, and you're lined up alongside of people. This is how John the Apostle could, at times during that meal, lie with his head in Jesus' side. It's more formal. It's a banquet of some sort. Most likely with Jesus as the honored guest. Why? Because he's certainly the most famous person at this time in the area. We've seen the word spread, the word spread, the word spread. In fact, Simon himself addresses him as teacher. Simon is not hostile to Jesus. We've got to look at our players here. We've got Jesus. We've spent a lot of time looking at him in Luke. And here's Simon the Pharisee. Three times, in case you missed it, he's a Pharisee. 
One of the Pharisees asked him to eat. He went into the Pharisee's house. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, oh, sorry, four times, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, she get it? This guy's a Pharisee. Before we get his name, four times, he's a Pharisee. And yet, I don't think he's meant to be seen as the villain. He's certainly wrong. He's certainly misguided. But he certainly doesn't start out hostile to Jesus. He didn't invite Jesus over, and this is some elaborate trap. He speaks to Jesus in respect. And Jesus, in return, addresses him by name, speaks to him. Simon, I'm having something to say to you. Nothing indicates there's hostility between these people. Now, Simon's wrong. Simon's a fruit of the wisdom of the Pharisees. He's one of their children, and we're going to see him confused, and Jesus correct that. But his story's open-ended. We don't know where, where this goes. We don't know what becomes of Simon, and so we can be hopeful that better things happen for him. So Jesus goes and eats dinner with them. Jesus will eat not just with tax collectors and sinners, but also with Pharisees, which I think you could argue might be worse. Um, just read, read the New Testament. I think that's a fair statement. I think that's a fair statement. Certainly not so what Simon thinks. And so we have a dinner banquet, and the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. This is the first of three times Pharisees invite Jesus to dinner. I gave you the references there and in Luke 11.37 and 14.1. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner later as well. Even as his hostility with the Pharisees continues, Jesus is willing to give grace to them. He's willing to go. He hasn't shunned them, even as they are beginning to shun him. So here's, here's the context. He's at this dinner party, probably the guest of honor. Just can't imagine. If not the guest of honor, certainly the most exciting guest, the one everyone's talking about, as the word has spread and spread and spread and spread. And a, and a genuine invitation, not, not a trap. Nothing about this speaks of that. No, no hostility. In fact, even as we look at Simon's own inward dialogue, he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. That's probably why he invited them over. And then we have a dinner interruption. A dinner interruption. And we have this woman. She doesn't have a name. In all this passage, she doesn't have a name. She's simply the woman or the sinner or the woman who is the sinner. You, you couldn't have a greater polar opposite in this culture and in this class. Pharisee, almost certainly having money, he's, he can throw a banquet like this, prestige in the people's eyes. He's religious. He's fastidious. He's loyal to the country. And here's this woman who's called a sinner. Now that's a technical term, and it's not just... It's not just Simon's opinion of her. Notice the narrator calls her that. Behold, verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She was a sinner. And that grouping is, is, is frequently done in Luke to show the lowest of the low, the dregs of society, the charge in 530. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors are hated because they've betrayed the people. They've sold out to Rome. Rather than being loyal to Israel, they've got a tax franchise, and they abuse and use and mistreat and, and steal money from their countrymen so they can get some money. They're sellouts. They're traitors tax collectors, and sinners. And Jesus' response, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 7.34 here, the charge, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
So it doesn't just mean someone who sins, rather a notorious sinner, someone in the town who is known publicly to be a sinner. There's really only two possibilities of what this could mean of her. The woman is most likely a prostitute or an adulteress. So it's, the only type, it's the only explanation for, for this type of public notoriety. She's either a prostitute or worse, an adulteress. You couldn't have a greater polar opposite. I mean, our culture doesn't have much shame anymore. But in Israel, a known prostitute, a known adulteress, she'd be excluded from all polite society. She'd be looked down upon, despised. And, And she, the unnamed woman, and Simon could not be more opposite. What's also interesting is she's clearly got some backstory with Jesus. We don't know what it is. And this this story is open-ended at both ends. We don't know what becomes of Simon. We don't know her backstory. Because when she shows up, she's already loving Jesus. Jesus tells us what she does is an act of love, and she loves because her sins are forgiven. We're not seeing in this encounter the woman's sins be forgiven. They've been forgiven. That the flow of Jesus' logic is because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. And the, and the weeping and the wiping and the kissing and the anointing are all acts of love. So she's doing these loving things because she's been forgiven much. Therefore, the forgiveness has already taken place. She's already had some encounter with Jesus, possibly some encounter instead with John the Baptist that would sync with the people who called God just having received John's baptism. But we don't know what it is. The story's left open. Because the story's not ultimately about her, or even ultimately about Simon. It's about Jesus. Her fate, we don't know her backstory, don't know it. When it comes to Simon, we don't know it. All we get is this clear, powerful snapshot of our great Savior. And what does she do when she shows up? She comes, she brings a flask of ointment. And she comes in, barges into this dinner. Polite society, the Pharisee, probably other Pharisees respected teacher, and in comes this woman. Like a human virus or disease. I mean, that's how they view her. This is a woman who seduces men, who takes money, who who breaks marriages. This is a woman who, who is cursed. She comes in, and she comes in, she stands at Jesus' feet. So Jesus is reclining, his head towards the table, and there she is standing over his feet. And then something amazing happens. She, she begins to weep. And this certainly wasn't planned. She didn't plan to wash Jesus' feet. She would have certainly brought a towel and a bowl. You don't plan to weep and weep to the point that you, you know, wash feet. This isn't a plan. This is spontaneous. This is a spontaneous act of love. She learns where Jesus is. She grabs her ointment. She goes. Who knows what she was going to do? Was she going to anoint Jesus' head? Was she going to give him the ointment? I don't know. And as she gets there, she's overcome by her love and her sorrow over her sin, or whatever it is she's weeping for. We'll look at that in a little bit. And she immediately begins to weep, and presumably she notices her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And so she, she goes down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Again, you got to understand in Israel, your hair is a woman's glory, this is your beauty. This is your honor. She takes her hair and she wipes dirty feet. 
with her hair in love. And then as she's, she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, weeping all the time, she, she, she starts to kiss his feet and anoint his feet with perfume. And what's more remarkable is this takes a long time. This is not quick. I mean, imagine you're at a dinner party and something like this happens. You're at a formal dinner party. And in comes a known prostitute, a known adulteress. And the reason why I know it took some time is, is both the keys from the Greek, where the verbs shift to continuous, the imperfect, but also Jesus himself says, since the moment I've come in, she has not stopped to. So this is not some quick little thing. This is ongoing. Here comes this woman. She comes in. Her hair's down. She's weeping. There's almost certainly some noise accompanied by this then. You're at a plate dinner party, and she just bends down, gets on her hands and knees, and is weeping and wiping. I mean, that's got to be awkward, <laughs> especially if you're a Pharisee. It'd be awkward for us. Let's face it, right? And then it doesn't stop. It's going on. She's still doing this. That's what Jesus says, because that's the point of this. And what is, how does Jesus respond? What does he do? What does Luke tell us that Jesus does? Nothing. And maybe he did, in fact, do something, but Jesus doesn't respond in the text till Simon does something, does he? he does, we to, we're, told, we're told in verse 44, he turned to look at the woman, so presumably he, he hasn't turned to her yet. She's doing all of this, and yet when Jesus acts, he speaks to Simon, whom he's facing. I mean, so this gets even more awkward. This woman barges in. She's doing this kind of awkward thing. It's kind of visceral. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's just a little too close for comfort. Certainly in polite Jewish society, women don't get this close to men. And what does Jesus do? I'm not told he does anything. In fact, I don't think he's even turned to look at her yet. And that's, that's what's shocking to Simon. Simon doesn't get shocked that she does this. Simon is shocked that Jesus doesn't do what he thinks a prophet should do. Response, Simon reasons to himself. And that's where Luke goes to next. Now, the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman it is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. What's the logic? You don't let prostitutes do this to you if you're a good and righteous prophet. You, you shoo them away. You kick them away. You call the servants. You, you get her out. Why? Well, it's entirely likely that she's unceremonially unclean. Who knows where she's been, who she's touched, what she's done. And again, remember, the whole notion in the law is contamination. The unclean contaminates. And let alone, who knows what this weeping, kissing thing is. If she's a prostitute, maybe she's even trying to begin to ply her trade. Pick up a prospective customer. You stay away from such people. You, you, you don't let them come and do this, and you certainly don't put up with it. This has been going on for some time. Now, if this man were a prophet, he would know. And if he knew, there's no way in Simon's mind he would not react differently. That's the reasoning. If this man were a prophet, he'd know. And if he knew, he wouldn't react. Why? Because Simon believes that such conduct from such a one is shameful. 
That's the conclusion. That's the implied conclusion. This is shameful. And to know what's happening and to let it happen in his mind would be shameful for Jesus. Notice what's going on. Simon has put himself in a position of judgment. He is, he's evaluated and judged this woman, and now he's turning and evaluating and judging Jesus. Simon is the judge. He's the righteous one. The woman, we already already know who she is. There's no need to pass sentence. We'll just continue the sentence that's already been passed. She's a sinner. And now... If this guy were a prophet, he wouldn't be doing this. When we think of Jesus, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. Jesus does not act as Simon would expect him to act. And that is what draws Jesus' action. Jesus doesn't respond in this text to the woman. He responds to Simon. I love this. Is he, in fact, a prophet? He's thinking to himself. How does verse 40 start? Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything. I wonder if he's a prophet. Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, Jesus answers him. Love that. Luke, Luke's, Luke's funny. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, Jesus doesn't respond in anger. There's gentleness. He's teaching, and he's going to use a, a pedagogical form of teaching. You ask questions. He's trying to draw the, the student in. He, he's trying to help Simon. He's not going to pronounce woes on Simon. He's trying to teach him. There's hope for Simon. I mean, Luke, after all, knows a Pharisee who ultimately came to have a different view of Jesus, doesn't he? If you read through Luke Acts, he's the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Who knows? And Jesus tells Simon a parable of two debtors. He says, Simon, I'm having something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells this parable. It's pretty straightforward. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Again, notice, Simon walks into the trap. You don't have to be too smart to realize where Jesus is going with this. And at other times, the Pharisees will anticipate where Jesus is going and say, we're not playing ball. So Jesus can say, you tell me, who's, who's baptism? John, was it from above or from, from man? And they say, well, if we say it's from above, you'll say, why didn't you get baptized? But if we say it's from man, the people really like John and they'll get mad. at We don't know Jesus. We don't know. Well, Simon walks right into this, quite honestly. I don't think he didn't see where this is going. He's, he's dealing honestly with Jesus, and Jesus deals honestly with him. And Simon says, well, I suppose, Jesus answers his own question. He asks Simon a question. Who do you think loves him more? These two men who owe large amounts of money. The one probably owed about two months' wages, the other about two years. So if you want to put this in, in comparative modern terms, think of how much money you make, your household makes, in two months, one month, two months, that's what the 50 denarius guy owes, and the other, about a year to two years wages. That's what is owed. And neither one of them is absolutely impossible debts, but they're sizable, they're sizable. The point isn't to show just how big. We're not looking at the, the scope of forgiveness. We're just looking at this basic principle. We're trying to get one point out of a parable. The comparison, who loved him more? Well, the guy got forgiven more. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And I, and I love this now. Look at the language of 44. So here are these two people who could not socially be further apart. What does Jesus do? He triangulates them, in the text at least. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So now Jesus turns to the woman. 
but he doesn't talk to her. He turns to her to illustrate her to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? So now Jesus turns to the woman and says to Simon, and now Jesus applies that parable to Simon and the woman. First, he contrasts Simon's and the woman's honor and love for him. And now he begins to rebuke, correct Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus contrasts Simon and the woman's honor and love for him. Now we know that hospitality is a big deal in the ancient world. It's a big deal in Jesus' day. It's a big deal for Israel. And Simon is Jesus' host. Twice we're told he's the one who invited Jesus. And in, in the Middle East, where people wear sandals, they walk around all day, your feet get kind of funky. And so it was customary, especially when there's more money involved, when there's servants in more formal environments, for slaves to wash the feet of guests. John the Baptist elsewhere says, in relating how much lesser he is than Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And of course, Jesus puts that all in his head, showing about servant leadership when he washes the apostles' feet. Now, Simon presumably had the means and the servants to do this. He's throwing a dinner where people were reclining at table. There's guests. And even though he's Jesus' host, he does not provide the hosting, the, the grace to Jesus. He does not give him the honor that is due him. The woman does. And he says, you gave me no kiss. A customary greeting. And it carries on in the New Testament. You'll see in the epistles, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a sign of honor and affection. Does, does Simon do this inexpensive thing, easy thing for Jesus when he comes in? No. Presumably, I would guess, because he's still undecided. You show too much commitment to Jesus, and people think you're his disciple. But I don't know. But he doesn't do this. The woman did. It was customary as well to anoint someone's head. It was refreshing. The oil on your head was a sign of honor. It was also a refreshment. You can read in the Psalms that, that um, a, a righteous rebuke is like oil running down my beard. Now, that's not a very um, appealing picture for us, but back then, this is a way of refreshment and, and cleansing and honor. doesn't do that for Jesus, but she does. What she's just saying was two things at least. One, who in this picture is Jesus' true host? Who's, who's acted as though Jesus were their true guest? Simon or the woman? And while Simon's busy making judgments about whether or not Jesus is a prophet, he himself has neglected hospitality. He's neglected what is right. He has not shown it. He's actually guilty or wrong of breaking at least the social custom. He's too busy, worried about who this woman is and does he know who she is. He's neglected his own responsibilities. And while he's neglected those responsibilities, this, I mean, think about the contrast. This woman, this prostitute, this adulteress, she has fulfilled in exemplary fashion the very thing that Simon lacked. 
over-the-top, extravagant honor. Because now we're back to who is Jesus, right? Is Jesus so great that you can say John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived because he introduced Jesus? Well, this woman is showing Jesus that type of honor, that type of love, that type of fealty. Not Simon. Not Simon. He contrasts their honor and love for him. Next, Jesus connects their love to their own awareness of sin. Now he's going to get the root of the problem. Why? Why didn't the Pharisees accept Jesus? Why did they stumble over him? Why did this woman love Jesus so much? Straightforward. Because she recognized her sin was great. Look at verse 46, 47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And notice, Jesus doesn't play any games trying to pretend this woman is not a notorious sinner. Jesus admits as well, she's got a lot of sins. No argument there. This is not about, no, we've misunderstood her. She's really not as bad as you think she is. She's really, you know, she's the victim and it's not her fault. That's not the way this argument goes. Jesus freely grants, yep, big sinner. Absolutely. She has many sins. The argument is, but they're forgiven. And that is why she loves the way she loves. She's been forgiven much, so she loves much. And then Jesus turns and uses that same logic to explain why Simon doesn't show Jesus this type of honor and this type of love. And I got to imagine this stung. But he who is forgiven little loves little like you, Simon. It's got to be hanging in the air, right? You didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Jesus contrasts the honor and love they show for him, and Jesus connects their love to their own awareness of sin, which is exactly the logic when we last, when we first saw the Pharisees back in chapter 5. They're all upset because he went to a dinner party with, with Levi, the tax collector. And Jesus said, ah, it's not well people who need a doctor, it's the sick. You guys think... The problem with the Pharisees, they don't realize their sickness. They don't realize that they are blind, that they are captives, that they are sinful, corrupt through and through. Now, Simon might recognize some sins, but they're little. And consequently, the person who may or may not be his savior, he would owe little love to. And then... Jesus now responds to the woman. So he's turned to the woman, talked to Simon. Now he's going to address the woman. Simon is, is done. We, he doesn't do anything else in this passage. I hope these words sunk in. I hope the rebuke stung enough to bring him to repentance and change. But now we look to the woman. The woman who still hasn't said anything. She hasn't asked for anything. She's not doing this as a plea or a request. Up to this point, everyone who comes to Jesus wants something. Come, come heal my servant. Heal, people would bring him in Luke 4. All of their sick and all of their disease and their demon-possessed, they want something. This woman, what does she want? Nothing. What requests has she given? Nothing. She's not even doing this to be forgiven. She is forgiven. This is simply love outpoured. And Jesus now speaks to her. And he uses a, a, a verb tense in the Greek that makes it crystal clear. She is, in fact, already forgiven. He says to her, 
your sins are literally would be in a state of being forgiven. We'll get to this this Friday, the perfect. It's the perfect tense. Okay, there's three people who are tracking with that. Um, but he, he, he says it and makes it clear. And don't misunderstand this. It's, the logic isn't, and if you just read verse 47, it could go both ways. The logic isn't because she's loving like this, she is forgiven. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. It's not she's forgiven because she did this loving act. The love that she's expressing is because she's forgiven. That's the whole logic of the parable. First, the debtors are forgiven, then they love, right? Two guys owed a a, a debt collector money, he forgives, then they love. This woman's loving, she's been forgiven. She's had some past encounter with Jesus, with John the Baptist. And Jesus announces to her their sins are forgiven. It's possible she may not even have known that. I think it's equally possible to make it clear to deal with, with, the, with the audience present at the table that Jesus, yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners and he is a friend of tax collectors, but he's a friend of forgiven and repentant tax collectors and sinners. It's not as though he's, he's approving of their actions. This woman's forgiven. She's different than you used to know her. Her sins are forgiven. It's the same statement he made in chapter 5 when he saw the, the paralytic's friends lowering him down and they saw their faith. The Pharisees react, his friends react. Who is this then who even forgives sin? See, Simon stumbled over Jesus' social propriety. They stumble over his claims to authority to forgive sin. We've seen this before in Luke 5.21 exactly where the Pharisees first stumbled over Jesus. And then he says again to her, woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So she comes in and the Pharisees, Simon is appalled It's completely inappropriate, scandalous. If this man were a prophet, he wouldn't put up with it. Jesus not only puts up with it, he publicly defends and vindicates her. What she's doing is not only appropriate, it's love. And she is forgiven. She's been forgiven by God. Jesus makes no such pronouncement on the Pharisees and his guests. He vindicates her. We don't know what she does after that. The scene changes. I just want to look at quickly two points. Two points from this. There's a lot going on here. I just want to look at two things. One, we've already heard the accusation now in the Gospels, one, two, three times, that Jesus is is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a, a drunkard and a glutton. Is that true? Does Jesus approve of and hobnob with scandalous people? Well, in a sense, absolutely it's true. Jesus unashamedly receives and forgives repentant sinners. Jesus unashamedly, no shame whatsoever. In fact, he'll go so far as to vindicate her publicly. He's not embarrassed in the least bit. He's not uncomfortable at all to have ex-prostitutes or adulteresses come and honor him this way in public. He receives and forgives repentant sinners. Now, just why do, why, that, that's key. That repentant sinners is key. Well, why do I say that? Well, go back to Luke 5, where the charge first got brought up. They're mad because he goes to Levi's. 
Verse 29, Levi made a great feast. Verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now there's the beginning of this charge. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus, yeah, I eat with these people, and I'm calling them to repentance. We're not hanging out telling stories about how we've ripped off people through excessive taxes. Levi leaves everything. He repents. He follows Christ. It's a dinner party, and Jesus says, oh, yeah. I'm calling these people to repentance. What else? In Luke 7, we have clues to her repentance. There are tears in her eyes. She's weeping. What's she weeping over? Jesus tells us her sins that are many are forgiven. That's what repentant people do. Sorrow for sin. She humbles herself. I mean, and think about this. All of us are so often consumed with hiding our sin from other people, protecting ourselves from shame. She had to know what the Pharisees would think if she did this. And how more debasing of yourself and humbling of yourself can you be than to take that which is meant to be your glory, your hair, and to get it filthy and dirty with someone's toe jam, and the gunk on their feet, to act like a household slave, the lowest of the low, in front of these people who you know will do exactly what they do, despise her. This is a repentant, contrite woman. She doesn't care what they think because she is at the feet of Jesus. That's another mark, by the way, of repentance. <laughs> this, this is amazing that Jesus receives sinners like this. You've got to understand, under the sacrificial system, you could approach God, but if I could make the comparison, having a meal with God was a black tie affair. That'd be fair enough. No shoes, no shirt, no service. You had to go through all of this cleansing and rituals, and only then could you dare to approach, and only so far. Don't come any closer. There were grave examples of what God did to those who transgressed and took it lightly. Just ask Aaron what happened to his sons. So you could come, come to God's table, offer him a sacrifice and pleasing aroma to him, but you better come right, you better come holy, you better come clean, you better do it just so. That was the God mediated his, his relationship through the old covenant, through the law. And Jesus, who is the Lord of God, Jesus, who is this, the God of the Old Testament, think of this contrast. This woman can come this close, this intimately, this genuine and raw. There's no ceremony she goes through. I mean, I get the impression she's just overcome with love, that she acts without thinking, first weeping, then, oh, no, i got to clean up my tears, and then, well, these feet are beautiful. She kisses the feet of her Savior. And I don't think it entered her mind, but I think Luke means it to enter ours, the similarity of the picture of her actions and Ruth who needed so desperately a redeemer, who needed so desperately a kinsman redeemer to redeem her. And in Ruth 3, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. You know, Simon's looking at this event take place. 
there was another biblical picture and thought that could have come to mind to help him interpret what was going on. Not that I think it was in the woman's mind in the least, but Jesus unashamedly receives repentant sinners. That means he unashamedly receives us. There's there's no guilt or stain that you can have that would make him blush or make him ashamed. Have you drawn near? If you draw near like this woman, in humility, in repentance, not caring what others think, you can draw this close. The Israelites could only draw so close to the mountain. Moses repeatedly, tell them not to draw any closer. I'm going to kill them. You can draw this close. You can have this access to the living God in Jesus Christ. Second, great awareness of sin is necessary to love Christ greatly. Great awareness of sin is necessary to love Christ greatly. Your estimation of the disease will directly correlate to your value of the cure. Now, Simon's story ends with no further clarification. We're left wondering what becomes of him. And, you know, we can, we can identify with the woman. We're that woman. Understand also, we're in danger of being that man, Simon, aren't we? I, I think it's entirely possible for us to be quite comfortable with a polite, civil, friendly relationship with Jesus. And I invite him over to my house from time to time, and I show him a little honor. Not too much, mind you. But we keep it respectable. We all have a good time. <laughs> I think it's very easy to have a shallow view of sin. Of course, of course I've done something wrong. Of course I've made mistakes. And I'm so glad Jesus has forgiven me. And we get together every now and then. We have a nice meal. And everything's above board and respectable. <sighs> we're, in, we're in danger of Simon, aren't we? Right? We... You wonder sometimes why we talk about sin, why we study it, why we look at it. It makes people uncomfortable. It makes people feel guilty. It makes people feel awkward. The reason why the Bible focuses on sin, the reason why I am teaching focus on sin, is not to try to make people feel bad. It's to try to produce this type of love and devotion. You wonder why you don't want to sing songs on Sunday morning. You wonder why... Your prayer life is weak. Maybe it's because your understanding of your own sin and God's forgiveness is weak. He who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. Well, we need to prepare now for communion. And I want to invite you as the men come forward to, to understand that here's another meal that you're invited to come and sup with the Savior. Not, not really. He's not in any special way here But symbolically, as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you declare your fellowship with the Lord. You declare your sharing with him. And he declares that he's not ashamed of you. He's cleansed you. You're you're invited to this meal with the Messiah and his people. But the same restrictions apply. Only come if you're forgiven. Only come if you're his. Your conscience is clean but you are welcome to come. This is a table for his people, for his flock. Men would come forward. We'll prepare now for a time of communion. We want to set aside a moment for us to examine our own hearts. Set aside a moment for us to examine whether we are coming 
like this woman, without shame, without fear, because our sins are forgiven, because we love our Savior, because He is great, we are lowly. Lord, guard and protect us from being like Simon. Let's just have a moment of of quiet self-examination.